slash and cast. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with one of my favorite filmmakers and humans, Richard Stanley, about Solomon Kane, H.P. Lovecraft, Frank Frazetta, magic, mythos, film, fiction, monsters, and more. And as always, if you're listening and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. Really helps out a lot. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature One overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Kind of all of the above, but I would say I was a, a classic creepy kid from the point of view that I didn't make friends easily. I collected famous monsters of Filmland and Warren Comics made Aurora monster model kits. Had the good fortune to be a kid in the late 1960s and the early 70s, which I think was a tremendous time to be doing it. Went through that whole cycle of having teachers confiscating my horror comics and tearing them up and pretty much sticking um, pins into voodoo dolls of the adults. So um, a pretty traditional upbringing, except it was happening in Africa. It's the only odd thing. These were, I was a side effect of famous monsters of Filmland and Creepy and Vampirella finding their way into the off-world colonies. Somehow these magazines fell into my life all the way over in South Africa, Zimbabwe, when I was a four-year-old. I think that impacted on my further growth as an adolescent and adult. Do you feel like finding like-minded individuals was even more uncommon in South Africa? Yeah, impossible. They didn't exist. Uh, I was the only um, creepy kid in my hood. Assumed to be an anomaly um, initially. Um, lots of trips to the child psychiatrist for using too many dark colors in my crayon drawings, <laughs> drawing gaping spiders eating people and things. And then it was really um, famous monsters and creepy and eerie that changed my view on that kind of thing because I noticed for the first time that they had a fan page and that there were other creepy kids elsewhere in the world who were doing the same thing and experimenting with makeups and making um, stop motion monster models. Um, I guess. I guess this was the very beginning of the fan scene and like a lot of folk I have probably Forrest J Ackerman to thank mm. for reassuring me as a, a very very young lad that I was not alone in this world. Yeah, the 50s and 60s is pretty much the uh, genesis of the Monster Kid generation, so it's the golden era, really. Absolutely. I <laughs> always felt it was never any good after um, they stopped issuing Aurora Monster Model kits mm. with some um, low-in-the-dark exchangeable parts. When it comes to films, which ones come to mind when you think back to your formative years, the ones that impacted you most creatively? The first movie I ever encountered was the original King Kong, so that sent me down a certain path. I was a Kong fanatic for the first 10 years of my life, and that pushed me towards Ray Harryhausen, and I, I came to um, Golden Voyage of Sinbad and Jason and the Argonauts not long after Kong. And I guess another impact was that my mum was uh, secretly a big fan, not only of H.P. Lovecraft, but of Christopher Lee. My first trip to uh, King Kong, I managed to watch at home because my dad rented a 16mm projector and brought home a 16mm print, which happened when I was, yeah, about four years old. But somewhere around that time, I think I was probably around five, my mum snuck off to a double build at the local drive-in of the um, original um, Horror of Dracula of Christopher Lee, plus Taste the Blood of Dracula, which was the first time I encountered Hammer. Very memorable double bill. Of course, I misunderstood it completely as a kid. I thought Dracula was wonderful and um, was very upset when he um, disintegrated in the sunlight at the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, you just mentioned Lovecraft, Richard. Obviously, you know you have an early relationship with Lovecraft. Uh, do you remember the first story of his that you came across and what you felt like when you read it? Probably the gateway drug for the Lovecraft mythos was um, the dream quest for unknown Kadath, which in fact I didn't read, but my mum read it to me as a bedtime story in, uh, in installments. was my introduction to, to that, that universe. So I, I came in through um, Kadath and Dunsanian fantasy 
material. Um, then very rapidly, um, that led to to harder stuff. By the time I was about 12, I guess, I was fully up on the um, Call of Cthulhu role-playing games and had, had become irritating nerdy kid who was always differentiating between the, the core canon and what August Dulles had added to the mythos, etc., etc. <laughs> That's still a conversation amongst uh, Lovecraft folks to this day, whether or not to include Derelith. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that happened pretty fast from the, the point I started reading it. <laughs> There's many routes we can go from here, Richard. Obviously, you wear many hats. But before we go too far into fiction and films, I like to ask about the genesis of your relationship with the occult. You know, was that instilled in you early on? Or was there a subject you stumbled upon that sort of sparked it all for you? Now, again, I can squarely blame my mom. She was an anthropologist. Her name was Penny Miller. Her magnum opus was a book on African myths and legends, Southern African myths, myths and legends, which um, she was writing during my youngest years when I was literally one, two, three, four years old was when she was actually um, researching the book. And in order to um, do her research, she was constantly herring off to um, extremely remote locations and finding um, very strange people, different tribal pockets in Africa and instantly seeking out the local what in those days they would have called a witch doctor what we now call a traditional healer to interview and about the most bizarre subjects imaginable and I guess as a four-year-old this seemed normal to me because I didn't have anything else to um, compare it to so I naturally assumed that these guys were um, super important and whatever that and that whatever they had to say was of, of great value it wasn't really till I went to school when I was about six years old or seven that I realized that not everyone believed in, um, say, invisible beings that lived in riverbeds that had magic pebbles they kept in their mouths or any of the, the strange things I've been show, told as a <laughs> child. So I realized this caused problems within the school. I learned to cover up and um, basically not talk about that material. All of us weird kids go through that phase where we learn to shut up. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Although it was useful. I mean, I'm mm. pleased to say that I was never um, sexually abused at school and I was never bullied simply from the point of view that um, I was too creepy. Never being abused yeah. as <laughs> No, I learned at an early age that fear, superstitious fear had a certain power to it, and that's provided I um, looked uh, um, a little weird and gave teachers the evil eye and gave the bullies <laughs> likewise the evil eye. They kind of stayed clear of me, which is pretty much what I wanted. What age do you begin to experiment creatively with maybe writing short stories or making amateur films? Yeah, that was pretty much from the off. I think I was um, messing around trying to um, write stories from the time I was probably five or six. And the, yeah, I've got a lot of early examples that um, have survived down to this day, wow. which um, give me a, a sense of, of how that came along. I was probably more inclined towards um, what these days we'd think of as, as high fantasy. I kind of progressed further into um, horror, really, as I was working in movies and starting to um, shoot amateur to your films simply because we couldn't afford to um, stage lavish fantasy epics. Uh, the most you're probably going to be able to afford is one monster. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, that kind of, yeah, <laughs> directed my efforts in a, certain, in a certain way. Most of the juvenilia, the fiction I was writing as a kid, is set in alternative Earths or um, a thousand years after human beings have become extinct or oh. one thing or another. And they're not, um, yeah, traditional um, horror pieces. I think it wasn't really until uh, around hard where the thing started going down that path. And when you say high fantasy, do you mean uh, maybe Michael Moorcock style or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I adored Moorcock. Also, yeah, I came to Moorcock pretty early and it was a, a good period for it. It was the, um, the 70s. And of course, um, Lovecraft led to Robert E. Howard. Yeah, all of my life I've wanted to um, make a sword and sorcery movie. Pretty much any sword and sorcery movie will do. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a massive Frank Frazetta fan as well. So um, that's just a, um, a side of things that yeah, I've, I've not been able to pursue thanks to the, the, the different budgets. So I've never been able to um, convince anyone to um <sighs> shoot a story that's set in the past up to this point. I can sort of do um, near future sci-fi or um, present day, but the moment I suggest well, can we do like, you know, the, the 12th century or, or even the 17th century, people kind of, yeah, look at me a little askance. Hopefully it'll happen one day. <laughs> I really hope so. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with uh, Mr. Frazetta's granddaughter, Sarah. 
Yeah, she does a great job too. Yeah, I've been wanting to do that for a super long time, and yeah, I absolutely adore Frank's work. Um, there's a um, a never um, really reproduced or circulated Frazetta hardware poster because he was the first person I went after once some um, hardware got made, and it's thanks to um, Miramax that um, that poster never got out into the world, but it does exist. Do you um, have a copy? Yeah, I'd love to see it one day if you ever get uh, send me a picture uh, of it I'll or something. I'll have to forward it to you afterwards but yeah that truly it does exist oh, wow. that, like, yeah my first my first impetus in hardware is to um, immediately try and go after the people uh, yeah that i admired the most so yeah huge huge Frazetta fan goes without saying that i'm also a huge john milius fan yes uh, i've spent most of my life mourning the fact that they've not been able to make king conan and make a proper sequel to that franchise and yeah uh, looking darkly at the way that the robert e howard ip has been handled I, yeah, I think the last thing was the Jason Momoa Conan, which I haven't seen, so I really don't have an opinion on it. But folks that I trust their opinions on such things are not fans of it, so take with that what you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I opted this to, to do the same. I also stayed away. <laughs> so if you could, since we're on the subject, we're just riffing about it. If you could uh, adapt a non-Conan Robert E. Howard or sword and, any sword and sorcery tale, what would it be? Just, you know, dream-wise. I've got a personal stake in um, Solomon Kane because <sighs> I think that um, Solomon Kane's not been properly understood. I, I was baffled by the previous adaptation because it's like, come on, guys, Kane's set in the um, the 17th century. He's a Puritan, not a, a, a possessed Spanish prince or whatever they made him into last time. And this is a, a time period where we have pistols and muskets and rapiers, not um, not broadswords. So it's a very rich and fertile period to. Um, to set a story and uh, I just don't think Caden's been um, quite given his moment yet so there was a time when I got so close to it I was already scouting locations and went around a whole chunk of um, Cornwall trying to find what 17th century West Country would be like and how to do it and obviously I wanted Kane to go to Africa because that's what happens in the story and what we haven't what we haven't seen in the in the movie yet and the thought of yeah doing a, a 17th century Africa is um, still something that um, I find very beguiling. Most sane people, I'm also um, fully in love with um, Worms of the Earth. Bran McMahon, who also um, clearly hasn't had his day. And there's um, clearly a, a Howdian, Lovecraftian um, Romans in Britain movie that doesn't yet exist, but could be a lot of fun for someone. <laughs> I mean, Solomon Kane is my favorite Howard protagonist, so that would also be great. You know, the Skulls and the Stars adaption or something like that would be amazing. But Yeah, you know, it, go. It, remains to, it remains to be seen what will happen. I mean, I think that there's genuine question marks over the Robert E. Howard IP. It would require a, um, a larger legal department than I have access to <laughs> to be able to go after it. Color Out of Space only exists because we were able to um, basically figure out that the material was out of copyright and yeah. uh, no one really controlled it. And I've made a, a semi-career out of getting hold of public domain material like, say, H.G. Wells's Island of Dr. Moreau and, being a, 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 and trying to reinvent it. So certainly after taking a long good look at the Lovecraft IP, I have been um, casting an eye over quite what's happened to Howard's legacy and how, it is, and how it's ended up being um, effectively owned by Marvel and Netflix. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's certainly something that Howard himself couldn't have possibly um, conceived back in the day, yeah, or made any provision for. So I suspect a, a, a smart enough legal department might actually be able to um, retrieve Bran McMahon and Cormac McCart and a few of those characters from the, um, the legal voters. Yeah, I'm not quite able to do it at present. <laughs> and just my own personal preference when it comes to Lovecraft and Robert Howard growing up, the Lovecraft protagonists always seem to either succumb to the madness or something along the lines of that where robert howard would prefer to cleave the head off the monster which has always been my preference in terms of fiction so that would be that would be great to see but i'm not hopeful does your interest in the occult and magic fall into alignment with your art? Is it a big blank canvas for you in which to practice, if that makes sense? Cinema is a way of giving people a sense of, a, of what one's perceiving, a different perception from um, what they're um, normally picking up on. So you can convey maybe some some essence of those um, paranormal or otherworldly experiences that um, one lucks into in real life every so often. 
them, which are um, frantically hard to um, describe in words when you're trying to babble out your account of what happened last <laughs> night to someone. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it does give us a, a way of, I guess, portraying the, the mood and ambience and the way that those things um, seem to actually happen in real life. I do see it as a way of, I guess, spreading my um, yeah, somewhat off-kilter worldview. You just mentioned the color out of space a few minutes ago. Was there ever any, was it possible? Was there ever any consideration to make it a period piece? I think right at the beginning that was booted around but a number of things a bit of budget i guess above all else kind of mitigated against it but also there within me is a um a sincere desire certainly in lovecraft's case to um try and reinvent the boy and make him relevant i didn't want him to be something that was um i guess um safely um parked in the 1920s or 30s or in the kind of herbert west reanimator um role-playing game territory where he's a little bit of a joke and something we can kind of deal with. I right. thought the thing to do is to to try and port the um the old ones and cosmic horror into the present and see if there's a way of making Great Cthulhu back into a um a clear and present threat to um contemporary sanity. Much as I love my my Cthulhu soft plush toy, all of the the birch that showed up over the years. I'm, I'm super fond of it, but it does tend to um, belittle the old ones. And I wanted to um, see if there was a way of making it equally dreadful and maddening for, um, I guess, not only people in the present day, but for um, the ones that come after me, for the, um, the goddamn millennials. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and that, that's a continuing consideration because I'm certainly hoping to um, do more within the Lovecraft pantheon. I do see that um, in some funny way, Lovecraft's time has come. He seems to be um, connecting with the um, where people's hearts and minds are in the present day. And there's, yeah, there's clearly a struggle because it's um, Lovecraft's controversial as all hell at the moment. And I find that very intriguing. And I think there's definitely a need to go in there and um, shed more light on some of those archetypes because there's aspects of the man's work that I think we still um, scarcely understand. He's very capable of saying um, very um, big things in, um, so few words you almost don't notice it sometimes right. he has this habit of like spending um two three pages describing the trees the regional architecture and then something really big like say in color out of space the um ami killing the the, the, the kid and the mother in, in the attic is handled in maybe um two three words so you have to kind of read back and say like, what happened he, oh god he shot them but it's kind of <laughs> It's almost off screen. Uh, mm -hmm. He does that quite a lot where there's been things that I haven't noticed on the first umpteen readings of the story. Come back to it and gone, hang on. Did Professor Armitage meet Wilbur before he came into the library when he was still a child? There's, there's stuff often hidden in stories which I, I just miss over and over. And then it's like, wow, yeah, there's a need to go in there. I mean, Dunwich is a, um, a case in point. Like in um, Dunwich Horror, we're dealing with um, the Watleys or the Waitleys, basically uh, inbred backwards white trash who have um, crossbred with ultra-dimensional creatures from the beyond. <laughs> and Wilbur, who is half human, half alien, and who goes to Miskatonic University to get his hands on the Necronomicon, takes with him his granddaddy's Civil War era Colt 45, which um, he, he eventually, um, in a misguided manner, attempts to um, to gain custody of the book. And um, this attack on the library, um, the pedigree of the Waitley family, the way they positioned in the story, I think needs to be addressed now in, in the present. I, I'm very tired of people assuming that um, Lovecraft's a racist or a, a white supremacist. The Waitleys or the Watleys are, are clearly intended as um, forces of darkness and evil in the story and have to be stopped otherwise they, they will destroy all life on the planet. And I, I think even within Lovecraft's cosmic horror there's um, there, there is in fact some form of, of social conscience that I'd like to, um, to bring out of the shadows a little. 
I want to kind of ask you about the Lovecraftian resurgence. You know, it's weird. We're seeing in cinema and TV shows, we're kind of entering the neo roaring 20s. You know, most of those stories were written in the mid 20s, early 30s. It's just a bit odd to me. You know, Weird Tales being active at the time, more so now than ever, we're seeing all these adaptions come. Yours being the shining star to me. Have you, do you have any thoughts on the zeitgeist moving back around towards Lovecraft in the nearly 100 years since most of these stories were written? It's super strange. I mean, um, there's a number of things about Lovecraft's universe that are um, kind of so unique and so new still that it's difficult for us to um, fully comprehend um, what's happening. All of the stuff is, uh, yeah, in public domain. It's not controlled by any um, corporate family. Nobody's deliberately publicizing it or promoting it. But somehow, since Lovecraft wrote it back in the 20s and 30s, it succeeded in... Um, permeating human culture to uh, such an extent that yeah, kids in Russia, in uh, Japan, in in Africa, and here in the um, the French Pyrenees know who Cthulhu is or have heard of the Necronomicon. It's um, it's reached an, a level of almost global brand recognition without um, anyone um, deliberately promoting it. Right. It's taken about a hundred years for it to do that, but it seems to have spread in the um, the same manner as what um, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins describes as a religious beam, the way that uh, religious ideas reproduce themselves and take hold. And given um, the the somewhat sinister progress that the Lovecraft pantheon's made over the last century, <laughs> I would suspect it's well on its way towards becoming a um, some form of religion in another um, 100 or 200 years. The cult it's, is coming. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's doing real, real good for itself and it's not being helped by anyone it's doing it by itself mm -hmm. which is um, an intriguing thing Lovecraft created a shared a shared universe which is beyond corporate control which is something we haven't really seen yet it, we're, we're used to things like the Marvelverse or um, the Kingdom of um, Mickey Mouse and, and Disney but the notion of something like that which is actually no, not subject to copyright which anyone can participate in which is yeah self-sustaining I think was something Lovecraft encouraged from the very beginning he encouraged Howard and the other writers to include yeah. his ideas and to um, continue to, yeah, to add on to this um, self-sustaining um, fictional um, universe, which um, I think is pretty healthy, despite um, various attacks that have been made on the brand and on the uh, on the fan base. So I think Cthulhu will endure. Yeah, it makes me keen to, um, yeah, to somehow uh, assist in the process. Please keep trying. Is it safe to assume that you're also a fan of Clark Ashton Smith? Yeah, I love and adore Clark Ashton Smith. My go-to writer, whenever I feel I need a kick in the ass or a creative spark, I just read one page and then I'm good to go. Smith, for me, is like, yeah, it's, he's like incredible sort of in's-mouth, soft-scented chocolates. So rich and extraordinary that, yeah, I, I do exactly the same thing. I go in there for one page or a poem or a few paragraphs and then go, wow, and sort of go reeling off. <laughs> but I, I, I could never um, imagine trying to actually adapt Smith into a movie. Yes. His words are too important if that makes his words are what make the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, I homaged him in a, a short called The Mother of Toads, which mm. um, takes off from his story, but it's not a literal adaptation of Smith's original. I'd love to see that. Is that available anywhere? Forms the um, opening segment of an anthology movie called The Theatre Bazaar. Oh. Yeah, the 20-minute opening segment is, in fact, um, The Mother of Toads, a 20-minute um, um, Clark Ashton Smith um, homage that we um, shot here in um, Montsegur in the French Pyrenees. I mean, off the top of your head, do you, I don't know of any... Clark Ashton Smith adaptions. Of, are there any Clark Ashton film adaptions? Technically, no. I, it's, um, I don't think anyone has actually directly adapted a, um, a Smith story. Elements of Smith stories turn up in various movies, and it, it certainly influenced films, but not to the point that you could identify it. I mean, like here, I'm thinking the um, the presence of the um, the Book of Ebon in um, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond is a, an interesting um, <laughs> surfacing of, of, of Smith's material where you at least expect it. Yeah, and there's, there's folk who think that Dan O'Bannon's original um, treatment for um, Alien um, Star Beast is, t is influenced by um, the vaults of Yoy Vombus, mm -hmm. one of Smith's stories. And it's, uh, it's certainly true that the facehuggers and the, um, the bodies in the Alien Pyramid they find um, are present in the, um, in the original Smith story. 
Right. And this subject here, Richard, I don't want to harbor on it too long because you've covered it many times. And there's a whole documentary out there. By the way, we all know you were screwed on the island of Dr. Moreau. So when those events unfold, at what point do you internally make the decision to stay, observe and kind of give it back a little as opposed to just going home? The actual truth of it was, again, uh, I didn't make any decisions. Uh, I was kind of just a victim of circumstance, mm. uh, a rolling series of carb accidents. Really what happened on the tale of the island of Dr. Moreau um, in um, the existing Lost Soul documentary, they make a big deal out of the two Aussie blokes who were um, sent to put me on the aeroplane and send me home, and uh, that I apparently wasn't on the aeroplane. But in reality, what happened was... The guys put me on the aeroplane as advertised, and I flew out. Flew to Sydney, where I attempted to get my hands on a decent showbiz lawyer and try to sue Time Warner and Newline for um, for my full fee. So I, I did exactly what any um, regular um, filmmaker would have done in in, in my my position. Right. But um, in the interim, while I was happily dealing with the lawyer um, in Sydney, a rumor spread around um, Cairns, Queensland, in far north Australia, and found its way back to the water coolers in New line and um, Time Warner in Los Angeles that I hadn't gotten on the aeroplane and had disappeared into the rainforest and had organized a um, an Aboriginal army to um, potentially sabotage the movie and attack the set and that we'd erected strange stones around the location etc. But uh, yeah, all this was purely um, some kind of weird um, Chinese whispers thing that had, that happened between <laughs> Australia and um, Los Angeles. I had, I had no idea it was, it was that it was even going on. What had happened is I had tried to um, include the participation of a lot of tribal people in the movie. I didn't want us to be shooting on um, tribal land in um, in the rainforest and not to be working with the um, indigenous people. So I'd hired as many of them as possible onto the production. Prior to um, the shoot, we'd been train training them up to become beast people, putting them through this um, patent dehumanizing process that had been worked out by Peter Elliott, the animal behaviorist. So we, we had been training up for the indigenous people to be to be beast folk but um, not to attack the production um, somehow this was um, misinterpreted by the um, the American production people who were there who became suddenly very frightened of yeah of the whole tribal element and without me knowing it they actually purged all of them off the movie they um, pretty much fired or let go of every single um, Trobrian and Aboriginal person on the production apart from um, David Hudson yeah that all happened as a result of their paranoia after about a month I realized that um, my then girlfriend had gone missing up in Queensland and had not gotten on the aeroplane down to Sydney and I started wondering what the fuck was happening back in um, in Cairns and I flew back up to Cairns to see what was going on and uh, the moment I arrived on the ground in um, far north Australia everyone was like oh my fucking god um, you, you can't be here you know you, you're organizing a, um, an average larva to attack the production if they see you you'll get caught etc etc so there was sudden massive paranoia so so myself and my then partner got in the rental car and tried to get out of the city, out of Cairns, Queensland. And we, um, it was night, um, and we, it was still raining. The same um, hurricane that had started um, on the day we'd tried to start shooting was still going on at the point when I flew back in again. We tried to drive out of the town. We broke down in the rainforest out on the tableland. The following dawn, we saw steam and we followed it to where we found hot springs and then um, we ended up falling in with um, tribal people out in the, the rainforest and uh, other elements who had been let go by the production rallied to our cause and before you knew it I was organizing a um, tribal army to sabotage um, <laughs> production but it was a series of acts it wasn't through any intentional design it just kind of sheer force of paranoia eventually made me into the image of their fears. They deserved it. At this point after the events of that film was your passion and interest in filmmaking pretty much dead for at least a while yeah, it's true. It, it, it dampened my um, enthusiasm for the process. But you could certainly put it that way. Yeah, as a result, I had to, um, I guess, reappraise um, 
my purpose in this place was right. if it wasn't making movies took off to explore another uh, a number of other angles so i guess um the first thing i did is I, I didn't need to work for a while i had the um luxury of having a um a very large um settlement from um new line time warner to um basically um keep me off the street i initially did um voluntary work i i, I did um voluntary work in a um essentially a halfway house for chimpanzees in um in Tebi in Uganda for the this is for um chimps that were um confiscated at customs points around the world and um are then repatriated and sent back to where they came from but you you obviously um they're all orphaned and you you can't just put them out into the wild and they're all traumatized so I ended up doing um voluntary work at a um a sort of rehab center for um primates in um Uganda in this um yeah same period ended up going to Haiti doing some shows for the um the BBC kind of went back to my roots that eventually led me back here to um to the Pyrenees I wanted to ask you about uh I believe the documentary was the white darkness that was out for the BBC Technically, um, no. What happened was uh, BBC sent me out there to do um, two shows for them, which was um, part of a series called The Last of the Medicine Men for a presenter named Benedict Allen. Those shows are, were, were shot and, and aired and are out there somewhere. Because of the scheduling of the um, the shooting on uh, um, the two shows I did for them for the, the two episodes of Last of the Medicine Men, it meant that we were um, sitting around for um, a couple of months in Haiti with mm. um, all of this equipment waiting for the point that the presenter would fly in we would um, shoot the voodoo festival for um, the BBC that seemed a, a, obviously a, a, a golden opportunity and simultaneously the US decided to do a regime change thing and basically um, deposed um, Aristide and um, the, the country suddenly got reoccupied by America we all had um, BBC press passes and official accreditation and cameramen and translators and yeah vehicles so um the opportunity to uh, cover the events as they unfolded and um just to shoot was there so um white darkness was kind of yeah shot in between doing the two um official bbc pieces incorporates all the material that the bbc would never screen which yeah includes the the interview material with the um the u.s marines the um as well as um i guess animal sacrifice occasional naked children um the cockfighting sequence etc just things that wouldn't make it onto um regular television sort of staying in that same time frame i wanted to ask you about your interest in the holy grail where that sort of came from and how that led to uh the secret glory yeah, this was the same time period, and it it was the same um, stew of events. I was actually um, engaged as a researcher for um, Channel Four Television in um, in the UK. They'd had a um, a hit documentary called um, The Rail Jurassic Park, which was about um, retrieving um, dinosaur DNA from amber. And they wanted to follow it up with a, um, a Rail Raiders of the Lost Ark documentary. Hired me on as a researcher to um, research the Nazi archaeological department, the Arnenberg SS um, archaeological group, and to see if um, any of them were still alive, um, whether we could interview them for um, British television. So I got dispatched to Europe with a pretty reasonable um, research budget to um, track down yeah, anyone who was still alive who um, knew anything about what had really happened and with a specific brief to go into what um, you might call the Nazi mysteries, the, this concept that um, the Nazis were um, looking for certain um, talismanic power objects such as the Ark of the Covenant, the Spear of Longinus and um, the Holy Grail. So it was a, a reasonable assignment and then um, the report that I made back to um, Channel 4 Television didn't find favour with the powers that be. By then I'd been on the trail um, long enough that I'd heard a, um, a series of different um, first-hand accounts from um, various uh, old people who had trusted me and told me their, their weird stories when Channel 4 wasn't interested in um, going forward with the series and um, when um, many of my initial um, contacts um, started dying from um, sheer old age. I figured that I needed to um, basically spring the money myself and go and um, interview them and to try and um, at least get some part of the story in the can but while it was still possible. 
now when it comes to the holy grail and all of its legends obviously you got several stories many cups uh which direction did your findings point you in well i ended up focusing on the grail simply because there isn't really a um a nazi arc of the covenant story which was really the thing that drove a wedge between myself and channel 4 television <laughs> because they really wanted a, an arc story try as i might i couldn't really deliver an arc story but there was a um a nazi grail story yeah i went after um the last crusade part hammer and tongues and that took me to um to Montsegur here in the french pyrenees part of my running um obsession with the um material has been really just that it it kept surprising me rather than ex explaining itself away uh, it became more puzzling the deeper i went into it i like a mystery that keeps on giving over the years uh, different um, events kept rattling out of the cupboard that yeah forced me to um to reappraise the material to the extent that i eventually um pretty much gave up the rest of my life and moved here to um to montsegur um full-time and thought okay well i might as well just do this as a full-time job and forget about the rest of it pretty much what was going on up to the point when um color out of space got made is there any point along the search and you're interviewing all these folks and traveling all these places did you ever feel that there was a time where you were in danger yeah that started a um a few years in the fear it did come slowly initially i thought this is a dead issue world war ii is over a long time ago and um, all those rounds have already been fired and it's um we should be okay i wasn't expecting it i kind of blundered into it and unfortunately it's a um an issue that's just become more deadly as as we've gone along and i would wish that it, it wasn't still a, a hot button issue unfortunately um people are, are still dying over it and people are still um killing over it uh, it's still going it's still a problem the 21st century i mean basically a um here in um in the south of france and the french pyrenees a, a chunk of history has been um covered up for more than 700 years through um incredibly um fierce persecution by um the holy roman church initially through the crusaders and then the inquisition and then the the witch hunters and this um succession of effectively burning and destroying um anyone who knew anything about it like and trying to control it in very much the same way as a virus separating out anyone who'd had contact with um anyone else who knew anything and then um, religiously burning uh, anyone who'd been touched by anyone else who had been touched by <laughs> whatever it was and they did that for um seven centuries and it wasn't until the um time of the rise of the nazis and otto Rahn, uh, the ss's um star grail hunter that anyone um told the story of what happened here in the mountains outside of france uh, um, otto broke the story as the first person to mention the the siege of montsegur to talk about the cathars outside of france uh, ever i don't think that any of that history was mentioned in um english language history books until somewhere in the um in the 1940s it didn't really start to filter into people's consciousness until um the 1980s or thereabouts where um different uh, historical and pseudo-historical documentaries stuff like um holy blood and the holy grail started to bubble to the surface and a, a growing sense that that history and certainly religious history had been um substantially edited altered by the victors as yeah started to creep out and of course in this day and age when you can no longer be technically be burned at stake for um dealing with, with this material and it's really a only very recently that you're allowed to even talk about this stuff without being arrested and burned at the stake because it's been like that for centuries it, it turns out it's actually still a problem even now um, tried trying to go there for any number of reasons is opposed by um a succession of powerful vested interests that don't want folk to know about this stuff correct me if i'm wrong richard but i believe us did you not follow otto's trail to a cave i believe i saw you post about that recently I Am I thinking of something different? Yeah, no, this is uh, talking about far north Iceland. Yes, yes, yes. Still a missing piece, one of the many missing pieces of the Otto Rahn jigsaw puzzle. When I was doing the initial research, I had a, a reasonable budget, but not a huge budget, and I couldn't follow Otto everywhere. Although Otto was killed relatively young, he, he's dead, I think, at um, 32 years old, he still managed to um, cover a lot of ground. In the time I spent um, retracing his steps and visiting the 
places that he mentioned, I found uh, myself coming to one incredible place after another. It's like, wow, I was knocked out by Montsegur, uh, the Devil's Lake, uh, the a number of the locations that he described turned out to be awesome. I realized Otto had a pretty good um, feel for finding a good spot. In 1936, Otto and a, um, a platoon of SS men went to the Arctic. We don't really know why. Otto claims that this was going to be the material for his third and final book. And this um, third manuscript of Rahn is missing. We have only two published manuscripts. And in 1936, he describes himself sitting at his table and back home with the, the pile of pages for his third book sitting on the, the desk in front of him. But um, this pile of pages is missing. We don't actually know what happened at the North Icelandic Cape, um, quite where he's going to go from there. And mm. the whole issue of um, what on earth the Arnold SS were doing in the Arctic or the Antarctic has its own myth complex surrounding it. Everything from um, Edgar Rice Burroughs' um, Land That Time Forgot, mm. warm water lakes in the far north, to um, secret Nazi bases deep within the ice, entrances to um, the hollow earth, every kind of, of crazy conspiracy theory. Back in the 90s, we didn't have the budget to follow Otto to, um, to the Arctic. The temptation was always there. Years later, shooting a music video for um, Johan Johansson in Iceland, I had the opportunity to finally um, go up to Reichhalten and to go up to the Icelandic North Cape and to um, follow Otto to the end of the, um, the, tr the trail we had. Yeah, that was a, um, a crazy journey. And what did you find in the cave? I can't say that we found anything beyond a, yeah, just a cave and a, um, a warm water lake. Strange pictoglyphs on the rocks, carved faces in the rocks. The carved faces, I can't tell how old they are. They look like they could be some, yeah, modern hoax or, um, a, but um, the funny thing about them is they um, look so much like something Clark Ashton Smith would have done. They look a bit like Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborean Warriors or um, Clark Ashton Smith's um, Shabnagorath. But what they're doing carved into um, a cliff face in the volcano in the Icelandic North Cape, I, I, I don't know. Obviously, also in Iceland, there's a lot of legends of the other world, of elves and little people, um, otherworldly beings that um, live on a different dimensional frequency to ourselves that seem to live inside rocks or inside mountains. That somehow, they, um, if you dug up the mountain, you wouldn't find them. But at the same time, somehow they are there on a different um, vibrational frequency. Yeah, a widespread belief in elves and otherworldly beings in Iceland would uh, again tend to uh, pinpoint this as a um, some kind of point of emergence um, or a, 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 a portal to the other world. It's all very Lovecraftian, isn't it? You know, a Nazi archaeologist and a Nazi Antarctic base. Just that alone, you know, that's a great story. Well, yeah, the, one of the fun things about the whole uh, Otto thing is that it unfolds kind of simultaneously to Lovecraft. Yeah, that's what was going through my head, yeah. 36, yeah, you said. Yeah, they, they're, the they're in the same time period. Strange. And they don't know each other. Yeah, don't know each other exist. To some extent, the um, Nazis are going through the same th thought process as Lovecraft. Lovecraft is initially thinking the Plateau of Lang is some kind of evil monastery somewhere in the Himalayas um, led by this um, monk with the yellow mask. Then Lovecraft a bit further on revises that opinion. He thinks, no, actually, this was just a memory uh, of, of the, the real plateau of Lang, which maybe is um, hidden at the pole and is maybe now underneath the ice of the Antarctic and um, something that's been lost through yeah, axial shift or whatever. Uh, I think that the Nazis went through a similar thing. There was a, um, and certainly some of the occultists did, where um, there was a period from the time of the um, Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society, when everyone believed in these ascended masters, yeah. and these Tibetan um, masters of the Far East, who were um, the secret rulers of the world, and who were presumably telepathically ruling the world from the top of a mountain in the Himalayas. The Ananova SS succeeded in getting the first expedition to Lhasa, and managed to actually get to Tibet, studied the Tibetans, studied some pretty odd things such as telepathy and pursued their um, rather quirky um, Nazi beliefs, the role of um, homosexuality and temple politics and they kind of went at it but I guess they realized the secret rulers of the world weren't there. 
if Shambhala isn't in Tibet, then where is Shambhala or Agati? And it sort of then seems to move to um, being somewhere underneath the pole or um, inside the hollow earth. If not in the hollow earth, then I guess it moves into outer space, always somewhere which is just... Just out of reach? Yeah, just out of reach. (laughs) (laughs) So a mutual friend of ours is Chris Bennett, a huge fan of his work. I wanted to ask how you came in contact with him. Well, really, just from being a, um, an enormous fan of his work, I think he's doing um, enormously valuable work. It's just absolutely wonderful to see um, occult scholarship of that level being made available to us. Right. Have you experimented at all with uh, cannabis ritualistically? I can't say I went at it as a, with any particular ritualistic purpose, but I, I suspect by now I've, uh, I've, I've probably covered those bases. <laughs> what are your own personal thoughts and experiences when it comes to psychedelics and such? You know, how do you interpret them and do you use them? I've always had a habit of pretty much um, trying anything that's offered to me. I was um, studying anthropology when I was back at the other end of my life. So I thought, okay, if somebody's going to say, try to try this, I always will at least once. So um, I haven't had an opportunity to um, to try everything under the sun yet. Yeah, I've certainly yeah, covered a little bit of territory. I would be of the opinion that you can achieve, achieve states on um, some psychedelics that would seem to be um, giving you a genuine insight into um, the workings of this weird place. I mean, I've had some extremely um, Lovecraftian psychedelic experiences over the years really that would probably keep me from ever trying it again (laughs) i've never done it myself like you just said i'm open to trying i just i don't know i'm just a little cautious i suppose because i know if i have a negative experience that i would probably shy away from it all depends i think on what you're going after and on the the circumstances um personally um i'm kind of anti-social i'm pretty scared of people whenever i've been um experimenting with um psychedelic i've tended to um go far away from um the human race make certain i put myself somewhere where um i can't be where no one's going to intrude uh, nothing is nothing urgent is going to happen where you're not online so this is just a, a general question i like to ask folks who are interested in these subjects uh, what does magic mean to you and how do you define it well i guess um how would i define it when you um are shooting a movie Maybe if you're Stanley Kubrick, you're going to do like 40 takes or something. But usually you're doing like five, uh, like five takes on the scene, minimum three, be ten. When it comes to editing the thing, there's always um, one obvious choice that everyone agrees is the right take. It's always take three is the one. There's there's some odd little thing, which is an element of magic, something which makes that one just somewhat better. Everything works better. The performances are more on point. A bird flies across in the sky in the background right in the middle of it there's a little trick of the light that really works well and one of them's got something the other ones don't have and that indefinable thing i guess is yeah magic in a palpable way it's uh, it's the i guess the spice the 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 ornament the essence of life and the thing that makes everything special life without magic would be like having to watch all the bad takes of the one good take cut out <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the best definition I've heard of. Psychedelics aside, have you had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yeah, over the years, I would I would say yeah, definitely yes. I, I'm definitely a believer that there's more going on in this place than we would like to imagine. As far as I'm concerned, the jury's still out. There's days when I really tend towards believing in simulation theory. I can't fully explain all the shit that's happened and the things that continue to happen um, in a fully rational manner because sometimes they yeah they, they, they do skip a beat and things that are, are fully against probability tend to occur and I can't tell if that's um, a supernatural mystical thing or, or whether that's somehow um, the program is written it's right or if it's natural yeah <laughs> yeah there are forces in this world that I, 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 that I do not comprehend and which are, um, are clearly more powerful than myself as to what's going to happen next uh, I'm relaxed I'm pretty much ready for anything I'm coming cataclysms are we going to get an alien invasion I'd really, I'd really like to see a kaiju attack at something that just hasn't happened I'd love to see it actually happen yeah that's what we deserve is a kaiju attack <laughs> if you ask anyone who writes enough you know they're likely to have a few odd experiences you know certain scenes or characters that play out after they've written them do you have an experience like that anything you can think of to where your imagination sort of come to life 
Yeah, uh, that, I think that happens um, quite frequently. It seems that when one's working on a script or a movie, it's kind of some kind of act of sustained willpower where you're trying to will a particular paradigm or reality into into existence. The more energy you put into it, somehow it makes uh, that thing more real. And even just reading um, good material, like from certain authors, can destabilize one's perception of what is apparently real. Like, so if you strap down and you do nothing but read um, Philip K. Dick for um, three weeks, your um, perception of reality will start to change, and things will become strange and paranoid, and it will start to make some kind of terrible sense. I think H.P. Lovecraft also has that power. If one sits and reads, reads too much of the material and looks at it for too long, it does start to impact on um, what, what one's day-to-day -day life. Wilson, we've just had Halloween. Uh, you mentioned to me in our emails that you need some time to recover because Halloween's a pretty big deal where you are, so can you share with us what you did and why Halloween is huge? I need to encourage Halloween out here because it's um, it's really just also reasserting itself after um, seven centuries of Inquisition persecution. Halloween's kind of largely back thanks to America. I think that they'd almost stamped it out and it was really only when kids saw it in um, films like E.T. and in Halloween that they started wanting to imitate it. Yeah, firmly back in, uh, on a village level here in the, in the Pyrenees which I'm, uh, I'm super glad to see. Felt a need to, um, yeah, to encourage the thing to um, to dress up a little. This year, I, I didn't trick anyone. Actually, gave treats. Next year, the, the tricks come out. Yeah, you need more time to um, to work on something decent. <laughs> right. You're really gonna scare them. So, Richard, what's the best advice you've received in your life? Oh, that's a toughie. I guess I'll go with the um, Parsifal thing of um, a true hero always asks questions. Don't ever believe in anything. The moment you um, start believing in something, um, stop thinking. Good advice. So what's on the horizon for you? Is there anything in the pipeline, creative-wise, maybe a story or a movie or anything? I like to keep a few things going at, um, at, at any one time. So um, at the moment, I'm really hoping to um, be able to go further into um, the Lovecraft mythos. I really hope that happens for you, man. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't have anything else for you. Don't want to keep you all evening. I know it's getting a little bit later where you are. No, certainly a pleasure, sir. You go enjoy the moon. I'll send you a link to this whenever I get it all edited and whatnot. Oh, sounds splendid, sir. Have a great day. Thank you again. Take care, amigo. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Richard. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find us on all your favorite social media platforms by simply searching Monsters, Madness, and Magic. And we'll see you back next week. Monsters, Madness, and Magic. <laughs>